All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman. And today is a mock draft Monday mailbag where I will be breaking down a recent mock draft from the draftnetwork.com, talking about the Falcons' potential selection of Penny Sewell in the first round, as well as answering your listener questions. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So, guys, you know me, I'm Aaron Freeman, been covering the Falcons for many years, formerly at Falcons.com, RIP, still going strong on Twitter, at Falcons, and of course, the host of this illustrious Locked On Falcons podcast, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, right here on the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And today's episode of Locked On Falcons is brought to you by Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo code Locked On, and you'll receive 20% off your next order. So today's episode is a Mock Draft Monday mailbag, our second Mock Draft Monday of the offseason. And I will be breaking down a recent Mock Draft from a week ago at the Draft Network from Brintley Weissman, in which he has the Falcons selecting Penny Sewell, the offensive tackle out of Oregon. And we'll get into why that move makes sense or doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, we'll get into that later on today's episode. And we also have a couple of listener questions one of them is uh, one outlining a strategy in which the Falcons trade Matt Ryan this summer and then use the draft capital there to sort of springboard them into basically accumulating future firsts and future second round picks for the next decade plus that Terry Fontenot can use to rebuild the roster. And how realistic is that strategy? We'll also sort of get into the idea that uh, the Falcons should potentially take a player like Kyle Pitts at the top of round one. And uh, I will sort of lay out at least my reasoning why that makes sense to me in my mind. But without further ado, let's sort of talk about Brintley Weissman's mock draft and the idea of taking Penny Sewell in the first round. And over at the draftnetwork.com, Brintley put his mock draft out there. He had, of course, the Jaguars taking Trevor Lawrence, number one. He had the Jets taking quarterback Justin Fields, number two. He had Carolina taking Zach Wilson, number three, trading up with the Dolphins, giving up a future first uh, along with their first round pick, number eight overall, as well as a future third round pick to jump up five spots to take a quarterback of their hopes and dreams, leaving the Falcons to take the best player available, presumably at four that is not a quarterback named Penny Sewell and Brentley had, you know, before we get into the Penny Sewell conversation, Brentley had uh, fields over Wilson, at least based off of the reasoning, largely due to Brentley feeling that uh, Justin Fields is a better prospect than Zach Wilson. And whether you agree or disagree with that, I'm not convinced at this point in time that the NFL is going to agree with Brentley on that. It seems like Zach Wilson is at least currently the overwhelming favorite. And I think Fields is going to have to do something substantial or Wilson is going to have to do something substantial to order sort of have Fields leapfrog him. Um, and last week on last week's mock draft Monday, I talked about, Oh, I've, you know, the Falcons or not the Falcons. I'm sorry. The jets 
I've heard the rumors that the Jets will sort of keep Sam Darnold and not draft a quarterback number two because they want to fix Sam Darnold. Well, in doing further research on that, it does seem that most people, even including the Jets beat writers, seem to be of the opinion that they will ultimately go with a quarterback and wind up dealing Sam Darnold. So uh, it, it does seem very likely that quarterback will go one and two in this draft. And I think Carolina is probably of the team's most likely to trade up into the top three or four picks uh, to take a quarterback. I think Carolina is probably the best bet at this point in time. It does seem like they are going to be aggressive trying to upgrade over Teddy Bridgewater this offseason. Um, this is one of the reasons why I am not as convinced as others that a trade down option is going to be available for the Falcons at four, because I think the team most likely to trade up is Carolina and they're not going to trade with the Falcons in all likelihood. So who are the Falcons going to trade back with? And if they're going to trade back with, they're going to have to fall back to like 12 or 15 or something like that in order uh, for someone to come up with quarterback. But who knows? You know, now Philadelphia, now that they've dealt Carson Wentz, might be in the quarterback market. So that that is a potential option for them at that point and moving back two spots to get um, whoever they like. But it does seem like the buzz is also picking up that Carolina is going to potentially make a strong push for Deshaun Watson. And that seems to have picked up steam over the last week. We'll see how that plays out. You know, this is my two cents. I don't have any inside information on this. Uh, you know, all the reports seem to suggest that Houston has no desire to trade Deshaun Watson. And it seems like they're probably not going to be in any rush for that. But it, it does seem like if Deshaun Watson is going to get trade, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I think probably late March, early April is probably the earliest it will happen, but we'll see. Uh, you know, that could obviously change. As for Penny Sewell, uh, you know, I've watched a little bit more of Penny Sewell in the last couple of weeks, and I'm not as completely sold on him as I was a month or two or three ago. Um, my initial impression of Penny Sewell was there was a lot to like there, but the deeper and deeper I've looked, you know, I'm not as in love with Sewell as others are. I think he's a very good prospect. Don't get me wrong. And I certainly think as far as being a generational prospect, yeah, maybe, um, you know, is he the best offensive tackle prospect since Laramie Tunsil, who to me was a generational prospect in 2016? Sure. I don't think that's a stretch to say, but I don't think I like him more than I like Tunsil back then. And when I compare him to last year's offensive tackle class, I don't right now think he's significantly better than who I thought was the best offensive tackle last year in Jedrick Wills, right? My, my top four offensive tackle rankings were Wills one, Wirfs two, Becton three, and Andrew Thomas four. And I think the thing you like about Penny Sewell is his movement skills. And it's similar to kind of what Becton was like you did you, a guy that size shouldn't be able to move as well. Now Becton did it at three sixty plus, um, and Sewell's only doing it at around three thirty. But I don't think he Sewell's as technically sound as Wills was uh, a year ago. I don't think he's as polished as Wills was. And I don't think he tends to dominate defensive linemen as much as Wills did. I feel like most of Sewell's dominant reps come against you know linebackers and defensive backs when he's blocking out in space, and so you know. I wonder a little bit, like when I watch him go up against like 280 plus pound D linemen and whatnot, I don't see him dominating those guys to the same degree that I would expect out of like, you know, when you see with a guy like a Quentin Nelson or, or whatever the case may be. So I, I do wonder about Sewell in that regard. And I, I do wonder a little bit whether or not my previous assessment that he could make a relatively smooth transition to guard is as accurate as I thought it was. Um, and I think the reason why I really liked his potential as a guard 
was due to those movement skills because when you look at the outside zone scheme, you know, that ability to climb to the second level and be that heat seeking missile to take out linebackers is very advantageous. It's the number one reason why guys like Brandon Fusco and Mike Person and Javon Brown and James Carpenter struggled in Atlanta and guys like Chris Chester and Alex Mack and Andy Levitri and to a lesser extent Ben Garland have succeeded in Atlanta as guards and interior offensive linemen because in that outside zone scheme, the latter group of guys were really good at run blocking when it came to taking out those linebackers. It's not about generating a huge amount of push up front. It's more about taking out those guys. And I think, you know, Sewell's not a, a road grader in the way that I think a lot of people assume he is. I think he's more of that sort of movement guy and, and being able to block in the space where is where he makes most of his uh, best blocks, not necessarily just like clearing run lanes like a Quentin Nelson did, or like some of these other guys from last year did. So that's one of the reasons why I liked him as a guard. But when we talk about the rationale behind drafting, so it, it makes sense. I think you can make a pretty compelling case that if the goal of this Falcons team is to stick with Matt Ryan for the next three to five years, Sewell arguably makes the most sense to be the pick at four, because one of the things that doesn't get discussed quite often with Matt Ryan is his struggles against pressure these past two years. And that's not something I think is going to get better with age. And this is where the Tom Brady comparison comes into play. Cause you look at Tom Brady and you look at his success, not only in new England and in Tampa Bay at his advanced age. And a lot of that is owed to the offensive line. Now it's It's not solely because of the offensive line. I think people go overboard when they act like the only reason Tom Brady is is good or great is because of his offensive line. No, the offensive line allows Tom Brady to be the best version of himself because a big issue with Tom Brady in his older age is he also – tends to struggle against pressure and tends to be a little bit more allergic against pressure. But because his offensive lines are so good, it's not a major issue for it's not a limiting factor for how good his offenses can be. Because generally speaking, the Patriots offensive line or the Bucks offensive line can go toe to toe against some of the better pass rushers and pass rushers and D lines in the league and be able to hold more than hold their own. And the goal for the Falcons essentially would be to try to build something similar. And you look at the template for the Bucks, where they have guys like Werfs and Jensen and, and Marpet that are arguably three guys that are top 10, top five players at their respective positions in the league. And he had something similar in New England with Shaq Mason and, and Marcus Cannon and, and Joe Tooney and David Andrews, who if they weren't top 10 guys at their respective positions, they were really close, like top 15 guys uh, at their respective positions. And the Falcons have two guys currently on their roster that are on that level, Jake Matthews, and Chris Lindstrom. You know, Lindstrom obviously has a bright future, a long-term future here in Atlanta. The question about Jake Matthews, and this gets back to the Sewell conversation, is how many more years of this of this Jake Matthews are we going to see? Typically, offensive linemen, whether we're talking about tackles or guards or centers, typically kind of run out, start to decline at age 31, 32. Jake is like a year or two away from that. And so, you know, we've seen guys like Jason Peters and Andrew Whitworth and Dwayne Brown play at a high level well into their mid-30s and beyond. We know that Jake Matthews' dad played for a very long time. He comes from a a long-lived football family, whether it's his dad or his uncle. So we know that it's not sort of impossible to think that Jake could wind up playing another four, five, six, seven years at a, at a reasonably high level. But I don't think that's, that's not the norm is the point I'm trying to make. And so the idea is you could draft Sewell and sort of have that continuity there where if Jake Matthews does drop off in two or three years, then Sewell can step in and be that type of player. And that gives you at least two guys 
and Sewell and Lindstrom that can be those top end guys. But in the event that Jake Matthews uh, can continue and play at a high level for, you know, three to five more years, whether that's at a left tackle, whether that's at left guard. And for the record, I, I tend to like Jake Matthews staying at left tackle for the time being, you know, with the idea of it ain't broke, don't fix it. But, you know, you put Sewell and if he has that potential Lindstrom and Jake Matthews, you have three potential top, you know, five to 10 offensive linemen on your offensive line. And that's going to potentially help maximize Matt Ryan's last couple of years. And that's not to sit here and say that Matt Hennessy and, and Caleb McGarry can't be good starters for the Falcons. But I think your aim point is less sort of that blue chip level of, of player at their respective position center and right tackle and more to just to be average to above average starters, similar to what you see with Donovan Smith and Alex Kappa in Tampa Bay this past year. So, you know, I'm going to do a little bit more of a deeper dive into some of the other second tier offensive linemen the Rashawn Slaters, the Christian Derrissaws, the Elijah Vera Tuckers, Jalen Mayfield, etc., to see whether or not there is a significant drop-off from Sewell to those guys, because I do wonder, in the conversation when we start talking about the Falcons potentially trading back, whether we're trading back you know, from 4 to 6, whether we're trading back from 4 to 12, 4 to 15, whatever the case may be, if the gap between Sewell and those next tier of guys isn't significant, if I look at the film and say, yeah, some of those guys could also be top 10 players at their respective positions. I think that's the biggest argument for why, if the Falcons aren't going to go quarterback at four makes sense for the team to trade back, because if there isn't a significant gap between Sewell and the next best guy, then it makes more sense to trade back, still get a really good offensive lineman, maybe pick up a future first, so that you can then potentially be in the conversation to have a quarterback next year and trade up for a quarterback next year if you need to do so, if Matt Ryan drops off, or, you know, get a good offensive lineman and still be able to get, you know, value in rounds two, three, whenever. You know what I'm saying? So we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. And so I, I will make a commitment over the next three months <laughs> between now and the draft to watch more of these offensive linemen. Uh, and, and now we'll let you in, inform you of my findings. But, um, you know, one position, one player that we could be talking about a little bit more, why that person may arguably make more sense than Penny Sewell as the team's fourth pick is Kyle Pitts. And we will sort of jump into that uh, later on today's um, Mailbag Monday Locked on Falcons podcast. But before we get there, guys, look, college football is back. That means FCS spring football is back. The CFL season is creeping upon us. And whether you're a football fan or you just love the NBA, college basketball, NHL, we're not that far from Major League Baseball and spring training uh, kicking off a week from now. And if you want to bet on all those things, of course, there's one place that I should cover, one place that I trust. That's betonline.ag. Sign up today for a free account at betonline.ag and use the promo code locked on for your 50% welcome bonus. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. Get in on that action by going to betonline.ag and don't forget the promo code locked on to receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit bet online, your online sportsbook experts. So get more from the sports that you need by checking out the locked on today podcast, where Peter Bukowski is giving you all the biggest stories with analysis from the local experts across the entire locked on podcast network. Start your day with all your sports news that you need in under 20 minutes by subscribing to locked on today, wherever you get your podcasts. So we got an email from Chris R and it's a long one. He has an interesting idea and he says the Falcons should arrange a trade partner now, but wait for June 2nd to trade Matt Ryan. 
Granted, by waiting to June, we will have missed the 2021 draft. That said, if Matt Ryan is not going to be part of the Falcons in 2022, it is better to trade him in June for future picks than cut him at the at year's end for no compensation. Also, because they could play him immediately in 2021, a trade partner would give more draft capital in June trade than they would after the season when Matt Ryan is a year older. So here is my additional wrinkle to the idea. Trade Matt Ryan in June for a 2022's first round pick and a 2022 second round pick, and the Falcons would also send them a 2022 fourth round pick by designating Matt as a post June one trade. We can spread the dead money cap over two years. A year later, we would then trade the 2022 first rounder for a 2023 first rounder and a 2023 second rounder. We would then continue to trade the first rounder each year, picking up an additional second or third rounder. Essentially we would create an endowment where each year the Falcons have an additional second rounder to use. If we did this approach, the Falcons could easily get 10 additional second rounders over the course of a decade by simply trading Matt Ryan in June and then maintaining discipline. More importantly, this approach would give Terry Fontenot perpetual cap flexibility as second rounders on rookie contracts are considerably cheaper than signing free agents. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. And again, this is from Chris R. Chris, I don't necessarily agree with your initial premise that you could get more trading Matt Ryan this summer than you would at the end at after next year, because teams are going to be much more willing to give up draft capital in February and March than they are in June. Right. I also think that if you can find a way to, you know, have Matt Ryan have a good season, you could boost his trade stock, even if he is a year older. Um, so I, I don't really agree with that premise. Now, I, I understand why you say that, but I don't think that's an automatic like, oh, Matt Ryan's going to be a year older and his trade value is going to only go down from here. The second thing I would say is I don't think a summertime trade of Matt Ryan is as plausible as you think it is. And I've discussed this before in the podcast where the only precedent we've had of a summertime trade of a quarterback was when the Eagles traded Sam Bradford for the Vikings. And that was largely due to the Vikings dealing with a career threatening injury to Teddy Bridgewater that summer and Bradford going to a Vikings team that had Pat Shermer, his former offensive coordinator on the coaching staff that essentially went to Mike Zimmer and Rick Spielman and North Turner that year and vouched for Sam Bradford. And as I said, the only real dynamic where that you could have a similar situation is the 49ers where Kyle Shanahan is there. And other than them, there's, I just don't really see a team that at least this summer, presumably feels like they're going to be a, a, a quarterback away from being a Super Bowl team like the Vikings did. That that was the main reason where they felt like we are a team. They were 11 five the previous year. We're a team that's all we need is good quarterback play and we can be a Super Bowl team. And I don't see any team other than maybe the 49ers that would look at Matt Ryan as that final piece of the puzzle. So I think you would have to find a way to basically go to the 49ers, you know, in the next couple of months. But I think basically you would have to basically make a promise as we get closer to draft night, you know, make a handshake agreement with the 49ers that, hey, if the quarterback that we like is there at four, we will then promise to trade you Matt Ryan in June. And that will then allow you to explore your trade options with Jimmy Garoppolo. But you have to tell them this weeks in advance so that they can explore their trade options with Jimmy Garoppolo so that by the time we get to draft night, they will then be able to pull the trigger on the trade to Jimmy Garoppolo, like say to the 40 to the Patriots. And so they would then have to have a handshake agreement with the Patriots. If the Falcons do take a quarterback at four and then trade up, promise to trade us Matt Ryan 
in June, then we will trade Jimmy Garoppolo to you for a third round pick. And so therefore you don't have to take a quarterback at 15. By the way, Brentley Weissman had the Patriots taking Mac Jones at 15 in his mock draft that we discussed earlier. And so like you would have to have this domino effect of like handshake and head nods and secret backroom dealings. And I just think while that would be awesome, compelling, dramatic television, I don't think that's a realistic scenario. Now, in a scenario where Jimmy Garoppolo re-injures himself in the training camp, similar to what Teddy Bridgewater happened in 2016, and the Falcons have a rookie quarterback that lights up the preseason, similar to what we saw with Dak that same summer in 2016, or Mahomes in 2017, or the great Jared Stidham in 2019, just kidding, um, then I think the idea of trading Matt Ryan in the summer becomes a little bit more plausible this upcoming August, but not necessarily in June. So for the second part of what you said in terms of trading back every year and accumulating draft assets, I think again, on paper, it makes some sense, but I think getting that sort of value a future first and a second or future first and a third, you know, requires you to basically have a top five pick every year and have a team willing to trade up to get a quarterback. Like you don't, you're not going to get that type of draft capital from most teams in the draft in any given year. Like I think the Marcus Davenport trade is the only example of a team giving up a future first in recent, you know, the last three or four years for a non quarterback. Right. And so more than likely, you know, there's going to be years, right. Where you're not going to feel, you're not going to want to trade back, right. You're going to be sitting there like say pick 14 and you're going to be like, there's a player for us to take. And in order to get back this sort of huge trade hall, we would have to trade back from like 14 to 38 in order to get there. And we don't want to trade back from 14 to 38 because there's a good player at 14 and there's not going to be as good a player at 38. And so, you know, I, I, I shout out to you, Chris. I think I like where your head is at. I like how you're thinking outside the box, but I don't think really either one of these two strategies is particularly realistic. I think the general idea of being a team that accumulates assets rather than giving them away makes perfect sense. Being more that Ozzie Newsom, Bill Belichick type rather than the Thomas Dimitrov or Mickey Loomis type. And I think this is going to be interesting. And we talked about this back in January when the Falcons were on the verge of hiring Terry Fontenot, sort of where on that spectrum he fits. Like we talked about how Belichick's philosophy was always about trading back and accumulating assets, but Dimitrov came to Atlanta and wanted to be his own man and was much more aggressive about trading up. And Fontenot comes from New Orleans and Mickey Loomis and those guys that have been hyper aggressive in recent years, especially with trading up to get players and Maybe Fontenot comes in and wants to be his own man and be more of that sort of accumulator, that sort of collector of draft assets. So we'll see how it all plays out. It's going to be very compelling to watch. Again, Chris, I I like you thinking outside the box, but I just don't think any of these scenarios are particularly plausible. So our next question comes from Greg E. He asks two questions. He said, how did Tennessee rank offensively as far as pre-post-snap penalties in 2020 and the same question applies to the defense under Dean Pease. And the second question is I'm all aboard with the trade back train, but obviously you have to have a trade partner. So come draft day, if we have to select at four and Penny Sewell, Justin Fields and Trey Lance are still available. What do you think is the best move? So Greg, to answer your first question, you can find all that information at NFL But as far as pre-snap penalties, the Titans offense ranked 29th in 2019, 17th in 2020, 
the Titans defenses and pre-snap penalties ranked sixth and fifth respectively in 2018 and 2019 under DMPs. So again, if you want to explore deeper into that NFL penalties.com is the place to go. As for your second question, I think the best move in their case is to take whoever's they think is the better quarterback. And right now I don't necessarily have a strong opinion on who I think is better between fields and Lance. Now, by the time we get to April, I, I should have an opinion on that, but right now I don't. Um, so, you know, I think the best move for you guys is to continue to listen to locked on Falcons podcast. And we will talk about the possibility of taking a tight end like Kyle Pitts at four coming up as we continue today's Monday mailbag. But before we get there, guys, I know what's also a great move by you is getting more protein in your diet. And you can do so by heading over to builtbar.com to get the best tasting protein bar out there on the market. You can get great flavors that taste just like candy bars. I'm a big fan of the coconut almond, the peanut butter, all built bars have hundred percent real chocolate in them. They also come in a bevy of favors beyond the coconut almond and the peanut butter. You can get caramel brownie cookies and cream, lemon almond cheesecake, cherry barbacea, so much more. And built bars aren't just tasty. They're healthy too. They're low in sugar, low in calories, high in protein, high in fiber. I like using them as low calorie meal replacements for breakfast and lunch. You can use them to give yourself an energy boost pre or post workout. However you want, just head over to builtbar.com. Use the promo code locked on to get 20% off your next order. That's promo code locked on for 20% off your next order at builtbar.com. So we're talking about the Falcons draft plans. And of course, you know, the more informed takes on what the Falcons and so many other teams could do in this upcoming draft comes from the locked on NFL draft podcast hosted by Trevor Sikama and Ben Solak every weekday, Monday through Friday, wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to locked on NFL draft podcast on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. So Devin R asks, I'm in the same boat as you in that I would like to see the Falcons take a quarterback number four to play behind Matt Ryan for 2021. However, most fans I talk to online seem to think that it would be a waste to Matt Ryan's final years. Do you really think it's possible that we can pick the right guys in the draft to get Matt Ryan a ring before his time is up? Or is that as far fetched as I think it is? I don't think it's crazy. You know, I don't think it's likely, but you know, it leads me to a, a question that from Stephen Bounds, because my answer to the question is going to answer a question from Stephen Bounds, which is, would adding a premium tight end like Kyle Pitts reduce the need to replace Matt Ryan by making him an effectively a better quarterback? So, you know, I've become the Kyle Pitts guy, right? Because I've been a strong advocate that I don't think the idea of the Falcons taking Pitts at four is a crazy idea. And I think it, the reason for that is I think it tends to get dismissed outright because people sort of have a, in my opinion, wrong assessment of positional value. They say, oh, well, tight end's not worth a top five pick. And yes, I think it's extremely rare for a tight end to be picked that high, but I think Kyle Pitts is arguably the exception to the rule. And people look at the tight ends historically that have been drafted that high. You have guys like TJ Hawkinson and Eric Ebron and Vernon Davis and, and Kellen Winslow, the, the, only top 10 tight ends we've had over the last, you know, 20 years. And, you know, Vernon Davis and Kellen Winslow both went sixth overall. And those were the highest tight ends that have been taken um, since 1972. We haven't had a top five tight end taken in, in 40 years or 50 years. I'm sorry. I can't do math. Um, but like, I think Vernon Davis and Kellen Winslow shouldn't scare people off. They became good players. And the reason why they didn't quite live up to their draft height wasn't because they lacked ability for in both guys cases, it was more a maturity issue in their guy in those cases for those guys, not necessarily living up to the hype that came in the draft. And from what I've heard and seen and read about Kyle Pitts, 
you know, there's been nothing but glowing praise about his toughness and his maturity. So again, I feel like you can look at him as the exception to the rule in that regard and feel like we're actually going to take Vernon Davis or Kellen Winslow at that pick and their exact and Kyle Pitts is going to live up to that hype. But, you know, I think the value of Kyle Pitts to explain it is that mismatch value that he brings to the middle of the defense um, or to the middle of uh, to attack the middle of a defense in that value that he brings to an offense. And, you know, I think one of the things that we're going to see over the next couple of years, um, we're already sort of slowly seeing the cover three become less and less popular. And I think because of the rise of the Vic Fangio's and the Brandon Staley's and the Todd Bowles of the world, we're going to start to see the cover two reassert itself as the most popular coverage to try to sort of slow down these high powered, you know, vertical passing attacks that we see across the league. But I think having a tight end that can attack those middle of the field open coverages like a cover two could potentially be an X factor and be a really valuable asset for offenses moving forward into this next phase of football. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say that, oh, if the Falcons draft Kyle Pitts, they're going to be the Super Bowl or, or anything like that. But I do think Super Bowl teams have to be elite at something, right? And so if we're talking about what's going to potentially give the Falcons the best shot in these final few years of Matt Ryan, whether it's three years, whether it's five years, whatever the case may be, to win a Super Bowl with Matt Ryan, you know, you got to be elite at something. And what that means when I typically mean that you got to be like top five at something. Right. And I think defensively, you know, that's self-evident. Right. We've seen seven of the last 10 NFC champions have a top five defense, according to Football Outsiders DVOA. Right. The exceptions to that were the 2011 Giants, the 2016 Falcons and the 2018 Rams. And the Falcons were first in the league that year in explosive plays generated on offense. And the Rams were second only behind the Chiefs in, in 2018. So you, essentially, you have to go back an entire decade before you found a team that won the NFC that wasn't at least a top five defense in terms of DVOA or a top two offense in terms of explosiveness. And so to me, those are the two variables that maximize your chances of being a Super Bowl team. And by the way, every NFC champion since the 2011 Giants has finished in the top 12 in those explosive plays, those 20 plus yard plays. Six of them were top five teams. The two that finished outside the top 10 were the 2015 Panthers, the 2017 Eagles, both of whom were, were 12th. And the Eagles were six in the league before Carson Wentz got hurt, right? And then they... They fell out of the top 10 in those final three or four games where Nick Foles was the starter. Also, if you follow this formula, the team that should have beaten the Giants in the 2011 NFC Championship game that would have fit the formula that had a top five defense and a top 12 most explosive offense in the league that year was the 2011 49ers. But thankfully, or not thankfully, depending on your perspective, but because Alex Smith in that 49ers offense could only convert one third down in that NFC Championship game, the 49ers lost in overtime, but I digress. So here's the issue with Matt Ryan. He's not a quarterback that's naturally inclined to generating explosive plays in the way that we traditionally think about it. He's not a Russell Wilson and Aaron Rodgers, a Patrick Mahomes that's going to use his legs to extend plays outside the pocket and buy time for his receivers and then heave up those 30 yard passes downfield to open receivers. He's also not the naturally big armed quarterback like Ben Roethlisberger, like Josh Allen, like Colin Kaepernick that is going to just drive the ball down the field and, and throw these frozen ropes 40 yards down the field to open receivers, right? That's not Matt Ryan. That's part of the reason why scheme is much more important of factor 
in why we talk about Matt Ryan's success than it is with some of these other quarterbacks. That's one of the reasons why someone like myself, and I can't speak for everybody out there that's advocating for a quarterback, but that's why some of myself is interested in getting a different quarterback, someone that has more arm strength, someone that has more mobility because your ability to generate explosive plays is going to be less reliant on having a great scheme. And the other factor as Matt Ryan gets older. And as we've seen with guys like Drew Brees and Ben Roethlisberger this past year, that at the age around 37, 38, these guys start to lose some arm strength. And so this is only going to become a bigger issue three plus years from now, Matt Ryan's only like two years away from his age 38 season. So this is going to be a potentially bigger issue in three years than it seems to be right now. So when it comes to the Arthur Smith offense, based off of what I have seen, it's not really an offense that's really great at scheming up explosive plays. I think a lot of their explosive plays is AJ Brown being AJ Brown or Derrick Henry being Derrick Henry these last couple of years. Now to be fair to Arthur Smith, He's relatively new to play calling, and so his offense can grow and evolve, and he can learn and adapt, and he could be a better guy at designing big plays in three years than he is right now or has been the last two years in Tennessee. So I don't want to necessarily sort of say like, oh, what he is in his first two years calling plays in the NFL is what he's going to be for the next 20 years. That's not fair to him. Um, you know, it's the opposite of the Dirk Cutter situation. Cause one of the issues that I talked about with Dirk Cutter was like, you're not going to teach an old dog, new tricks, but Arthur Smith is not an old dog. He's a very young dog. So you can definitely tr- teach him new tricks. And so I am certainly fascinated by where Arthur Smith as a play caller is going to be three to five years from now than where he is right now. Um, but I don't think he's going to come in right away and just sort of be this Shanahan McVay style of player, but, or play caller. So if the goal is to be an elite offense in the short term, then getting a pass catcher like a Jamar Chase, like a Kyle Pitts does make arguably the most sense. And I think the case for Jamar Chase is an easy case to make. It's basically, he's going to be Julio Jones 2.0 and having another Julio Jones is extremely valuable. But the argument that I would essentially make is that if you're going to have a unicorn, I think having a unicorn at the tight end position like Pitts is, is arguably more valuable, you know, like having a Kelsey or Kittle would be than having a unicorn at wide receiver is because a unicorn at tight end is much rarer than it is at tight end at wide receiver. Like, you know, (laughs) basically the analogy is like, it's a legit unicorn at a tight end when at wide receiver, it's just a, a, you know, a thoroughbred horse with a a stick on its head. Right. (laughs) You know, you know what I'm saying? So, you look at the production, particularly in the explosive play department, Calvin Ridley is giving you 80% of the explosive plays that Julio Jones has given you the last two years, right? And you have like four or five more years of prime Calvin Ridley. And I guess the question is like, would you rather team Calvin Ridley over that period of time with a young Julio, like a Jamar Chase or a young Travis Kelsey, like a Kyle Pitts. And I don't think there's a wrong answer to that question, but for me personally, I would prefer the tight end. And you know, that doesn't even factor in the red zone value that a tight end potentially brings over a wide receiver. Um, And I will also add in that. It's funny to me that like nine months ago, everybody was talking about, you know, Oh, Matt Ryan's going to, be benefit from having a tight end like Hayden Hurst because he's a different type of tight end that Matt Ryan's never really had before. And that was a argument why Hurst was a big time addition and why, you know, I heard also people saying like Matt Ryan's at his best when he's got a great tight end. Right. I imagine that's how they talk. Right. (laughs) And like, you know, I was like, 
I don't think Hayden Hurst is the the type of tight end that you think he is. And they're like, shut up, Aaron. You don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, you know, Pitts is legitimately that type of tight end. And people are like, shut up, Aaron. You don't take a tight end at four. That's ridiculous. So the knock on taking Pitts is you're probably not going to get that player this year, right? Rookie tight ends are rarely good, right? It's a learning curve position. But year two, year three, and you look at the production of guys like George Kittle, Gronk, Jimmy Graham in their second and third years where they were essentially 1200 yard receivers. They were essentially getting you 10 plus touchdowns, not necessarily Kittle, but Gronk and Graham were averaging like 10 to 15 touchdowns in years two and three for their respective teams. And I think that sort of adrenaline shot that Pence potentially gives you could be a huge factor to sort of propelling this Falcons offense. If you can generate the explosive plays with that type of tight end that can really make it difficult for teams to match up with you. I really do think that adds a ton of value. If you're, I think the argument that what is the piece that's going to propel the Falcons into a super bowl, you know, is going to be that elite explosive offense. And I don't think Penny Sewell's going to make you a more explosive offense. And I don't think there's a defensive player in this draft that's going to single-handedly turn you into, you know, a top five defense. So I think if you're going for the gusto, if you're going to go all in on the last two or three years of Matt Ryan's career to try to win him a ring, I think the argument is really compelling that it should be either Jamar Chase or Kyle Pitts. And again, I still think Pitts gives you a slight edge in that regard because Again, having a unicorn at the tight end position to me is a lot more valuable than people want to agree. And so I'm not really advocating for the Falcons to take Kyle Pitts, despite all that saying. I know, again, people are going to sit here and say, you're the Kyle Pitts guy. You're the guy that wants the Falcons to draft Kyle Pitts. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm sitting here saying essentially that I think people that are dismissive of taking a tight end at four, I don't think they really have a compelling reason to do so other than Teams just don't usually take tight ends that high. And that just to me is groupthink as opposed to just like, why aren't teams willing to take, if you think Kyle Pitts is a legit unicorn, if you think he's a legit generational tight end, if you look at him and you see the player that he gets often compared to is Darren Waller. But the thing about Darren Waller is Darren Waller, a lot of his production is like short and intermediate throws. It's not to sit here and say Darren Waller doesn't stretch a defense. But, like, I get why people compare him to Darren Waller because, similarly to Darren Waller, he has a similar frame, 6'6". You know, Waller was a former wide receiver and whatnot, and Pitts is basically a 6'6", 245-pound wide receiver. But I think, really, Jimmy Graham is more what what Pitts is going to bring to the table because of that vertical stretch ability, because of that ability to line up anywhere. Kelsey's another good comparison, although I don't think he's as strong or physical as Kelsey is. But as a route runner, as a mover, I think him and Kelsey are very similar. I think Vernon Davis, I think Jordan Reed is another good example uh, of a type of guy, but he's in in much bigger frame. Antonio Gates is another good example. Um, I just, I think Kyle Pitts is that type of tight end. And so if you're getting that type of tight end, if you feel like Kyle Pitts has that type of potential, I don't see why you would sit here and say like, you don't take that guy at four. And yet you see mock drafts that have teams like Cincinnati and Philadelphia taking up five or six. And you're like, Oh, like, are, are those bad picks? Or it's like, Suddenly, well, you know, I would I wouldn't take him at four, but if the Falcons traded back to six, I would take him. Or if the Falcons traded back to seven or eight, I would take him. Like, what's the difference between four and seven? Like, really, what's the difference? Who cares? You know, I don't know. But like, that's where that's where, like if I'm an advocate of Kyle Pitts, I'm an advocate of people to you sort of 
pull their heads out of their butts and actually start thinking about what the value of an elite tight end brings to an offense. And once you start thinking about that, I don't think you get hung up on this idea of like, I wouldn't take a tight end at four. Like you just be like, yeah, we'll take a tight end at four. It's an unusual thing. It's a, you know, crazy move, but so crazy. It just might work. You know, like that's what I think about it, but that's my opinion on it. Again, I know I'm going to forever be the Kyle Pitts guy. And, you know, if Kyle Pitts falls flat on his face, you know, people are going to be like, ha you thought Kyle Pitts was going to be a star. Just like, you know, eight years ago, I was like, I don't know about this Travis Kelsey guy. And like, you know, eight years later, ha you thought, you know, so like, I'm not even like advocating for Kyle Pitts. I just think, you know, people just are dismissive of it too easily. And I'm just like, why are you dismissive of it? Just sit there and think about it for 20 minutes and you'll be like, well, it actually kind of makes sense. It's not as crazy. It's not that crazy. That's all I'm saying. All right, guys, appreciate you guys for sending in your questions. Sorry for going on a little bit of a rant there uh, at the end, or I'm not sorry. Yeah. Sorry, but not sorry. Um, If you guys want to send in your questions for future mailbag episodes, you can do so. And uh, you can hit me up on locked on Falcons at, on Twitter at locked on Falcons on Facebook at locked on Falcons via email at locked on Falcons at mail.com. Sorry, a little loopy here at the end of the episode, you just too much Kyle Pitts on the brain and losing it. And tomorrow's episode, we're going to talk more about Matt Ryan and we're going to get more into the PFF uh, pro football focus QB annual and what their um, breakdown of Matt Ryan was on tomorrow's episode. So check it out and get more insight into what Matt Ryan is at this point in time in his career, whether, you know, pro football focus is looking at it and saying, you know, there's an issue with taking sacks. There's an issue with dealing with pressure. There's an issue with accuracy. There's an issue with vertical passing. We'll get into all of that tomorrow with our guest about the pro football focus quarterback annual and Matt Ryan and whatnot, and maybe get some further insights on what the Falcons should do. And then we'll, have a Falcons guest, a usual guest on the podcast later this week with Charles McDonald. And that should be on Wednesday's episode. So look forward to that. Appreciate it guys. Until then.